I know I don't. Right, and I shared with you last Sunday that the Ten Commandments, the law that was given in, in those ten words, it was never intended to, to bring us to salvation. It's not salvific because we can't keep the law. That's why, as, as I shared last week, and we share so much time in this church, and I'm going to share today, we had the perfect one who came and kept the law perfectly and fulfilled the law perfectly in ways that we can't. But in that, I still want you to understand that God's holiness is something that demands perfection. And since we are sinful and we are fallen and we have to wage war against our own sin daily, I want you to see that matched up against all that that is given in the form of instruction throughout these chapters. But having redeemed his own people, Israel, God declares his desire to dwell with them. And this is a theme that that runs throughout uh, the the, the book uh, of Exodus in its entirety. This theme of God dwelling in the midst of his people, it is is a significant biblical theme. It runs all throughout the pages of scripture, right? The, The first image that we see of this is the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis chapter three, where it says that the Lord walked amongst Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. But I want you to remember, as I've shared with you before, uh, big word that I'm going to try to really uh, dilute down, that's anthropomorphic language. That means that it's, it's really kind of a figure of speech so that we can understand what is at play. God didn't literally physically with two legs walk through the garden with Adam and Eve. It just simply meant that he was present with them because God is spirit. He does not have physical form. And so why that's significant is because it means that creation itself, the very creation of God that he made was the sanctuary in which God chose to dwell with Adam and Eve and with the Israelites in the wilderness and with us today. Um, now, after, after the exodus, the departure from Egypt, God makes these provisions to dwell in the midst of of his redeemed people in what is called, as I've shared, the tabernacle or the the meeting place. And this served as a a copy and a shadow of of the the heavenly tabernacle that that God uh, dwelt upon. That's in Hebrews chapter 8 if you want to go and look at that at another time. But the the, the heavenly tabernacle in which God dwelt, the the earthly tabernacle that we're going to read about here in just a moment, this this is a copy or a shadow of that. The tabernacle gets built, as we'll see, but then just to kind of lay out some, some groundwork for you so, you so you can see the full scope of this whole thing, the, the tabernacle would eventually be replaced with the temple in Jerusalem. Right, you're familiar with the temple. There were two of them. Solomon built the first one. It was destroyed. There was another one that was built. But these were built, both the tabernacle and the temples existed because God declared, and I want you to to catch this, God said, I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people. I will dwell with them. It is my will, my desire to, to dwell amongst you. And understand something, church, it isn't because God needed them. Does God need anything from us at all? Do we have anything that we can offer to God at all that he's lacking in any way? He wasn't lonely. He didn't need affection or love. He doesn't even need our worship. And these are the measurements. This is the layout. I want this made of of this material and then wrapped in gold. And as we get further out, it's silver and then it's bronze. And and only only these individuals can come in this far and do these things. He's going to go into an immense amount of detail. So understand, Israel is to worship Lord exactly according to these instructions. This is how they will relate to the Lord who is both holy and in their midst. And I think while this looks different for us today, it continues to be the pattern for how we are to approach God. We don't approach God according to our own ideas or emotions or cultural whims that exist or what this church or that person 
It, it, it isn't according to any of those things. It's according to his holy commands that we find in his word. So the tabernacle, as I said, is, is seen as this, this mobile palace, if you will, this, this tent of meeting uh, for Israel's king, God. And we'll see in just a moment that he will, he will sit on his throne in the form of, of the Ark of the Covenant that sits in the Holy of Holies. I'm going to unpack all of these things quickly as we go. But we'll see how his, his royalty is symbolized by the, the purple curtains that he instructs. And his divinity is, is seen in, in the blue curtains that he instructs to be made. And the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, you'll see the more valuable the materials are. We go from bronze to silver to gold. And so the closer that they approach God, the more they, they enter into his presence the more that they will see of his, his royalty, his divinity. A sanctuary is what is being made, and a sanctuary is a holy place. Which just like the, 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 the ground at the burning bush when, when God first came and spoke to Moses, what, what did he tell Moses to do? Take off your sandals, for the ground that, that you are standing on is holy ground. It was a sanctuary. And understand that, that it doesn't have anything to do with geographical location or the materials or the furniture that's being made. It doesn't have to do with, it didn't have to do with the bush that was, that was burning and not being consumed. It didn't have to do with any of that. It had to do with the fact that it was the, the very presence of God that was being entered into, that, that declared and made that specific thing holy. The same is going to be true with the tabernacle. And Israel is to follow the pattern for the sanctuary exactly as God shows Moses. Why? Why is that so critical? I've said it a number of times already. And, and here is, here's what I think. Here, here, here is the, the conviction that I have. Because the fear of God that we are to have is shown through faithfulness to the commands that he gives us. We obey, and, and, and maybe I need to unpack that quickly. We, like, we don't obey God simply because we fear him. Right? When I say fear, do you understand? Reverence, awe. Right? We, we, we are beside ourselves with the majesty and splendor and might of God because there is no one like him. And we enter that with trepidation, with fear, with trembling. Not because like the Greek gods served their gods and if, if they didn't satisfy or pacify their gods, then they would send a famine. They would destroy their crops. They would kill their children. God doesn't do those things. We don't serve God in that way. We approach him with fear because there is no one like him and he is holy so the fear of God is shown through faithfulness to what he commands. And then also, I believe it's because the, the particulars that we're going to see of the sanctuary are meant to teach the people what it means to have a holy God dwell among them. So let's talk about what some of those particulars are. The first thing that God instructs Moses to have made, to have built, is the Ark of the Covenant, right? And as we'll see, this is really the, the most important thing in all of the tabernacle. And in, in all of the tabernacle that is there, this is, this is the most sacred thing. It, because it was the very place where the presence of God descended to dwell, Right, and again, understand, God isn't literally sitting on this throne. It is just merely, it, it, is, it is symbolic, it is representative of the presence of God before his people. He would speak to Moses from this place. It was the very place where God descended to dwell with his people. And it is the whole purpose of the tabernacle. So let me go back to the text Still in chapter 25, verses 10 through 16. Exodus 25, 10 through 16, covering the Ark of the Covenant. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. 
You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on it, on its four, four feet, excuse me, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark of the testimony. You, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. That testimony will be the two tablets of stone that contain the Ten Commandments. So the instructions for the sanctuary begin with the ark. This is God's throne. Its pieces are to be overlaid with pure gold. It will hold, as I said, the, the two tablets of, that contain the Ten Commandments, which God will give to Moses. And it is to be the only item in the most holy place. Uh, I think I told you wrong, Dustin. Let's go to maybe slide number three. I'm going to just throw some images up so that you can see as I share, share with you. you. Uh, this, this is what, what we believe the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant might have looked like based on descriptions. descriptions. And, um, so, so as you can, can see, the, 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 the two chairmen that, that, that sit above, um, just above that is what we'll see here in just a minute, what would be referred to as the mercy seat, where, where God's presence dwelt amongst his people. It was seen as sacred because it's the place where God sits in order to teach his people to revere, as I said, his majesty. He designated the ark as the, the, the very special place of his earthly presence. And therefore, it wasn't to be touched. It was to be considered as sacred, as set apart. And if you know the story much later on, where, where David is having the ark brought up to Jerusalem. Right? And I just read to you that you don't take the poles out because it is meant to be carried always and only and carried by the priest. But what does David do? He has it put on a cart and, and, and pulled by oxen. And then the cart starts to tip. And a man by the name of Uzzah thinks it's going to fall. He reaches out and he places his hand on it to steady it. And do you know what happened? He was struck dead that very moment because God said, don't touch it. Regardless of his intent, I like to think that he, he did it out of, out of good intentions that he wanted to stable and steady this very special and sacred thing that God had instructed the Israelites to make. And, and, and it, was, it was important to them and it was where God dwelt. And, and so he wanted to stable it for that reason, but it didn't matter. God said, don't touch it. He reaches out, he touches it, he's struck dead. So, so here's, here's what I think we can take away from that, church. It teaches us not to take lightly the holy things of God. We don't take lightly the holy things of God. Everything associated with God is holy. His name is holy his word is holy. The worship that he is to receive is to be holy. It goes on into verses 17 through 22. Exodus 25, 17 through 22 says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its ends. The cherubim shall be spread out, shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And... And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. 
So the, the, the top part, the cover, the lid of the ark it was referred to as the mercy seat. And that was all constructed out of one piece. And that was the piece that you saw with the two, the two cherubim made from pure gold. The instructions focus on the, the, the fact that it is from above the mercy seat that, that, that um, between the two cherubim that, that the Lord will speak to Moses. The Bible tells us later on in Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, it says this, when, when Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony. And he, from there, he spoke with him. So again, this is what the tabernacle is all about. God dwelling amongst his people, them gaining access to God who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Now, there's a whole lot more there I would love to go into and, and for us to look at, but, but for the sake of time, uh, we just can't do it. So we're going to have to keep trucking along and we're going to see the, the next item which is the table of the bread of presence. And so maybe before we do that, throw up, throw up the, let's just do the first slide. And so this, this is what, what all, all of the tabernacle, we believe, would have looked like. So, so you, you have, have the, 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 the fence, fence as, as, as perimeter, perimeter, and then the, the building in the, in the background is, is the actual, actual tabernacle itself, itself the, the, the sanctuary. sanctuary. Right? And, 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 and I'm, I'm going, going to share, share with you here, here in just a moment how that, that is separated in two. two. So um, if, if you, you want to throw up the, the next slide as well and uh, let you take a look at that. This will be uh, the sanctuary, which is, is divided into two sections. You can see the Ark of the Covenant in the back, which is referred to as the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. And then in the front before that is just the holy place where we will see some of the, the items of, of furniture, I guess, if you will, uh, that, that are in that room. And one of those is the table of the bread of presence. The table is one of three items in this room. And its pieces are either to be overlaid with gold or, or made out of pure gold. So can you go, Dustin, to slide? Yep, right, right there. there. This table held 12 loaves of, of sacred bread, the bread of the presence, or showbread. All right, 12 loaves of bread symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. The bread is unleavened, which is why we see it as flat. It also, uh, if you go to the text and, and read uh, later on, you'll see that, that it, also, it didn't only hold the bread, but it also held various plates and dishes and pitchers and bowls that were used out of the bronze altar outside. The bread of presence, as I said, consisted of these 12 flat loaves of bread, which were the 12 tribes of Israel. We're given much more detail about this table and its items later on in the book of Leviticus. We see explanations, but what we know from just this text, if we, if we were to, to really take the time to read through it all, it's set opposite of the golden lampstand, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. But here's, here's what that, why that's significant. The golden lampstand always burned. It, it, was, it, it was never out. It was, it was maintained morning and night. This room would have been pitch black because of, of, of the, the, the number of of coverings of animal hide and animal fur and fabric that had been made. It would have been pitch black in this room. And so it gave light. And part of that, that light that, it, that I think it, it cast out shone on this table. And so meaning that the very symbolic presence of Israel is always setting in the, the, the light and life of God. Right? God's divine blessing is always being cast upon his people. And understand that doesn't mean that Israel or ourselves today, we don't face hardships, we do, but we know that we are, we are never forsaken. God never departs from us. We are always able to dwell with him because his 
The, the, the light of his just continual blessing is always shining upon us. His favor, his grace, his mercy. So switching over then to the golden lampstand, as I said, the, the lamp obviously provided necessary light within the holy place, which allowed the priest to be able to perform their services unto God. So if you can throw that next slide up. Um, there's a great deal of, of explanation or detail that's given in the text about the lamp, but we don't have dimensions. Um, most biblical historians think that it was probably somewhere upwards of, of five feet tall. And so, so this isn't just a lamp that you stick on, on an end table. Right? This, is, this is a big, a big lamp, lots of light. So it's casting out necessary light, but it seemed to have another function, which again, I think is symbolic. I believe, as I said, it represents the light and life that God gives to his people. And for this very reason, that's why the Levitical priests were instructed to maintain it morning and night. To keep it burning regularly. The lampstand had its, its branches that were molded after, the text tells us, a flowering almond tree. It had, as you can see, seven arms. This is very much what uh, um, historical and, and modern-day um, Jews would refer to as a menorah. It had seven arms with cups. It stood in the midst of the tabernacle, and many, again, biblical commentators b- believe that, that it is looking back to God's creation in the Garden of Eden. And it is representative even of, of the tree of life, pointing to the moment in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. So again, what I want you to see is, is everything has a purpose. Everything is, is reflect, reflecting something about God and his nature and his, his interaction with his people, his desire to dwell with his people. And I, and I want you to know that in all of this, right, we're going to go through a, a couple of more things. We're going to the tabernacle and a few more items of furniture itself. And I want you to stay with me because I, at the end, I'm going to tell you why really all of this matters. What is the, the, the spiritual application? What is within all of this that I think we should carry with us in our daily lives? So again, still moving on, moving quickly. We're moving to chapter 26. This chapter contains detailed instructions for the setting up of the tabernacle. And it describes all of, all of as I've said, the, the, the curtains and, and the frames and the bars and the rings and the, the posts and the bases of the posts. The tabernacle itself, which I told you was divided into two sections, the holy place and the most holy place. And I understand that all of this, church, is, is maybe, maybe not terribly exciting reading, right? Especially in light of what we see in the first half of the book of Exodus where we see plagues and miracles and just, just things that just God just showing off and showing who he is. And then we, we come to, to these passages, these chapters of scriptures, and, and I think we, we, we run the risk of wanting to just skim it or not read it at all. But I want you to remember, this is no ordinary tent. It is the very dwelling place of God amongst his people. It was the place where heaven touched earth. And God sat amongst his people. Within the tabernacle, as I've said, we have the holy place which contains the golden lampstand and and the table of the bread of presence, which I've already covered and also the, the altar of incense, which I'll cover in just a moment. And then in the, in the most holy place, we've already covered that the, the, it contains only the Ark of the Covenant and nothing else. This is the presence where the presence of God resides. 
But, but those two rooms are separated. Understand something that, that the tabernacle, the, the sanctuary of the tabernacle and, and the, per, the perimeter fence of the tabernacle, all of it faced east. It was always to be set up facing east. And I think that's significant because the holy place and the most holy place were divided by a curtain. And on that curtain, it says in the text that on the veil... There were cherubim that were skillfully worked into them, that were, were, were sewn into the fabric. And I think this is symbolic of God setting cherubim, it tells us back in Genesis, at the east gate of the Garden of Eden. When he expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, it tells us that he placed cherubim at the east-facing gate of, uh, or entrance to the Garden of Eden. And so again, we see the significance of this place, this location. And, and understand, only the high priest, which we're going to cover here in just a moment, only the high priests were allowed into the Holy of Holies, and only one day a year. And they had to go through intense, uh, an intense uh, purification process of, of washing and anointing with oil just to go in on the Day of Atonement. One day a year, they could go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice, a sacri- uh, uh, to, to seek atonement for the sins of their people. But before we get to that, we have to go outside of, of the sanctuary into the, the, the tabernacle court. And out there is the, the bronze altar. This was an altar that was made out of wood and it was overlaid with bronze. And we should have a picture of that as well. Yeah, that's it. And so this is an altar where the priest would offer sacrifices. It was made out of a couple of pieces, which you'll read in the text. But the, the top grate that you see was a lid, and it could be lifted off, and, and they would put uh, the fire inside of the box so that the animal sacrifices that were to be made, that were to be burnt up in its entirety, would be set on top of that and consumed with fire. The priest would offer sacrifices that the Lord commanded very specifically that Israel were to bring to him. And it was placed before the door of the tabernacle. The only thing that separated it from the tabernacle was the bronze basin, which I don't have a picture of because we don't have a great deal of description about this item. But it was essentially just a a stand with a bowl and there the priests would would wash and cleanse themselves after performing sacrifices at this altar. And those were the only two items that the Lord instructed for Israel to put in the court. Which takes us to the court of the tabernacle in in Exodus chapter 27. And church, I know we're, we're moving fast and we're skipping a lot. But I really want to get to what I think is um, how we apply all of this to our lives. All right, so again, let me encourage you, go back and read through all of this. Read through it slowly. Read through it intently. Ask the Lord uh, to, to give his spirit unto you to help you understand all that's going on in this. But the court of the tabernacle, it uh, is surrounded both the, the tabernacle, the bronze basin, the bronze altar. And there were instructions given for the tabernacle to be set up a certain way, as I already said, to face east. These were where the sacrifices would be made unto God. This was done by the priests, which were instructed in chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read to you. The priests were instructed to to wear very specific garments or attire for this, this function, this service that they provided unto the Lord within the tabernacle. Genesis 28, 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they should make 
a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make your holy garments, shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. And they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So God tells Moses who is to serve as the priest. He said, have your brother Aaron brought to you. Bring with him his sons Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar so that they may serve me as my priests. So understand, Aaron and his sons, they didn't, they didn't seek out this role. They didn't claim this title unto themselves. Their calling came from God directly. There was no such thing as a self-appointed priest. So again, God is very specifically instructing the people how they are to worship him. Right? Because as, as, we, as we know and we've covered that Aaron, the, 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 the priests that served in the tabernacle and the temple, they all came solely from the tribe of Levi. Right? They were the Levitical priesthood. God instructed very specifically, only men of this tribe may serve me in my house as my priests. God will say later on in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, he said, I chose Aaron out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. All right, so Aaron's garments, much like the tabernacle and all of the elements that made it up, are made from precious materials, and they are decorated with a purpose of, of bright, vibrant colors representing the glory of the Lord who is present in the midst of his people. So we have a, a slide for that as well. Again, just what we think. I say we, I didn't, I didn't come up with this, but uh, what we think maybe the priestly garments might have looked like. These materials that, that make up uh, this attire, I think imply that the priests, they're, they're close to God, right? They're called out by God. They're set apart by God. So they are, they are close to God. It doesn't mean that they're perfect men. It doesn't mean that they're sinless men. No man or woman is sinless. Only Christ. So understand, in this being set apart, it isn't because they did anything to earn or merit this role. God just chose them unto himself out of his own good will. But they act as the representative of the people unto God. And you might be able to see where that's going to lead us. But being the people, the, the representatives of the people, would have been seen very much in the very specific instructions of this attire. The, the, the 12 names, uh, the 12 sons, the, the 12 tribes rather, were, were represented, were, were written on the, 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 the breastplate, the ephod. Representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That, so whenever the high priest entered into the tabernacle, put on the ceremonial robe. It was as if he was lifting the people onto his shoulders and carrying them into the very presence of God. This is a man of God who represented one who walks in the splendor and the glory of the presence of the Lord. Following this, we, we have two sections in, in chapter 29 that, that deal more specifically with the, the priests and consecrating the priests and setting them apart. These instructions, uh, Genesis 29, 1 through 46, really the, the, the entirety of that text, give instructions on two things, I think. One, as I said, how to consecrate Aaron and his sons so that they might serve the Lord as priests. Right, because understand, the priests were the ones who went in and made sacrifices to, to, to gain atonement, to, to, to give forgiveness to the people for their sins. They were representative of the people. This, is, this wasn't a, a literal salvific work. This was a continual thing that was, was, was appeasing the wrath of God towards the sin of man. The second thing is, it instructs them on how they were to make these daily offerings. This is how the Lord would, would consecrate his tabernacle. Consecrate just means to, to, to cleanse, to make holy. In these instructions, 
God is showing how they, he, will, he will cleanse the tabernacle, he will cleanse the priest, and through them he will cleanse his people. And this is going to be significant in just a moment, church, so just stay with me. Before the, the, the priest, the high priest could enter God's holy presence within the holy of holies, they had to be washed from head to toe. God said, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Of course, this, this bath is symbolic, church. We know that sin isn't literally washed away with something as simple as water. Right, which is why we know that when we're, that there's, there's nothing salvific, that we aren't saved by being baptized, by being dunked under the water. That's symbolic. Right? You know that. That when we surrender our lives over to Christ because of the work that he did on the cross, we follow in faithful obedience, declaring to the world that we are unashamed to be united with Christ. And, and, and we, we attach ourselves to him in his death. In his burial, that's when we go underwater. And in his resurrection is when we come out of the water. It's all symbolic. We aren't saved in this act. We are saved by grace through faith. The same is true here. This bath is symbolic of spiritual purification. The priests weren't allowed to go in and handle anything in the tabernacle until they had been washed and, and cleansed. And I think to appreciate how holy this ritual was, I want you to consider if you know the story later on of what happens to two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. If they don't follow the instructions that God gives, the very specific instructions that God gives, saying, I want you to worship me only this way. And, and they take it upon themselves to offer up worship uh, and incense in a way that God doesn't instruct. And if you don't know the story, I would encourage you, go to the book of Leviticus chapter 10. But I'll tell you that because of Nadab and Abihu offering up service and worship unto the Lord in a way that he didn't instruct, they were both consumed entirely by the fiery wrath of God. They were literally consumed. It says in the text that when the people, the men of Israel came to pick them up and carry them away, they lifted them by their garments and carried them out, only their garments. So all of their attire wasn't consumed, but everything of themselves in their body inside that attire was consumed with fire because they offered up strange worship unto the Lord that he did not instruct them to do. So this is very serious work. Which brings us to the altar of incense, which we have a slide for. This is in chapter 30. The altar of incense would have looked similar to the bronze altar, just smaller. And this was the last of the three items set in the holy place. And it's set in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Because it's in the holy place, it too is covered in, in pure gold. And the, the priests were to burn incense on this altar. Offering before the Lord, both in morning and evening. Which also would have corresponded with the times when they tended towards, uh, to, to the, the golden lampstand. The priests were not free to use this altar in any way they wanted. Just like everything else in the tabernacle and the Lord's instructions, the altar of incense came with very specific ways of use. If you read it, it says that it was never to be used for burnt offerings. It was never to be used for grain offerings or for drink offerings. You couldn't even change up the ingredients of the incense that was to be burned. It was a very specific special blend of, of spices that were instructed by the Lord. And he says, only use this and never use that for anything else. So God is telling his people, I want you to worship me. I'm going to dwell with you. I want you to worship me this way. And then the last section that I want us to look at as we've gone through 
really nearly everything that is contained within the tabernacle is we see in chapter 31, starting in verse 12. Chapter 31, verse 12. We're given Israel and us by extension are given instructions about the Sabbath. Read 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses... When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The word Sabbath simply means to cease or to stop. On that specific day, which would have been Saturday for, for the Israelites, they weren't allowed to do any regular work of any kind. Now, we know in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees, they take this law to the nth degree. And they say, if you walk a, specific, a certain distance, if you walk beyond this point and continue walking, then that's work, that's labor. Not what God intended. We're to abstain, I think, just from, from our regular work so that we can rest. And failing to obey this command resulted in a punishment of death for the people of Israel. So I think remembering the Sabbath clearly was important to God. He commanded that his people should be set apart, or should set apart one whole day out of seven to just rest in his grace. Because, church, listen, think of all that God has done for Israel. Think of where he has brought them from. Think of the things that, of himself that he has shown to them that he is faithful to provide, to protect, to lead, to instruct, to correct, to rebuke, to punish. God is faithful in all that he does with his people. And so now he says, listen, I want you to just rest in my grace. And I think combining the Sabbath with all that we've seen on the screen, the things that I've shared with you with the tabernacle, combining those things together, it puts God at the center of Israel's worship. Church, everything in, in their worship was about God and none of it was about them. And that is still true today. The worship that we, that we offer up to God, and understand that isn't just the songs that we sing. It is that. And I'm so thankful for our, our team of musicians that lead us into the very presence of God with songs that offer him praise and thanksgiving. But also in, in our prayers, in the reading and preaching of God's word, in communion, which we're going to take here in just a little bit. In all of that, none of that is about us. It isn't about our preference. It isn't about our desires. It isn't about how comfortable we are with it. It is all God saying, I want you to worship me in this manner because as I dwell amongst you, I want you to see me as I am, as holy. And so in this keeping of Sabbath, church, I'll confess, I think, um, which I'm going to share why here in just a moment, we, we are to still keep the Sabbath today. I know there are some who say that well, Jesus is our Sabbath, and that's true, yes and amen, and so every day is Sabbath. The penalty, I know, no longer applies. Praise God for that. 
But I want you to remember from last week, there are two types, uh, or rather three, uh, there are two other types is what I meant to say, three types of Old Testament laws that I shared with you last Sunday. And if you weren't with us or didn't hear it, then it is the, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, is the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law is God's universal law that applies to all people in all places in all times. God's moral law in the form of the Ten Commandments, it is for everyone forever. But then we also have the civil law, which was very specifically for Old Testament Israel as a nation who was led by God. And church, the, the civil law is no longer binding. And I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. But, but the civil law was for Old Testament Israel. And then we have the ceremonial law, which governed the, the rituals and the sacrificial worship that Israel offered up to God. And all of these things have been fulfilled in Christ. So we don't have to hold to those any longer either. So where does the command to to keep the Sabbath fit in for us today. What kind of law is it? It's one from from the Ten Commandments. It is a moral law. Now, listen, certain conditions about that had ceremonial and civil law aspects about it. All right, like the day that it was to be celebrated, as I said Saturday, it was, that was the day I will tell you, if, if you need to Sabbath on Tuesday, Sabbath on Tuesday. I don't think we're restricted to just Sunday, but I think we are to keep it. So the, the, the penalties for breaking Sabbath were part of Israel's civil law. Right? We're not put to death any longer because we don't keep the, when we don't keep the Sabbath. And this is because this is part of the civil law. So there are aspects of ceremonial and civil law, but ultimately... Keeping the Sabbath is a moral law for everyone of all time. You might say, well, okay, but why did Sabbath breaking demand a death penalty? That seems a bit steep to me. I want you to remember that The commandment's purpose to to keep the Sabbath, its purpose was to protect and preserve God's relationship with his people. Because when when we don't keep the Sabbath, when, when Israel wouldn't keep Sabbath and they knew the punishment was death, Israel was essentially saying, as I think honestly we are essentially saying, and that there are exceptions, I know, so so try not to take it there. But but when we make it a habit of not keeping Sabbath, I think it is essentially us saying that we're just really not that interested in knowing the Lord. We really don't think that he's that deserving of our worship, of our time. And so church, listen, that's why this right here, it's why it's so important. It's why I love it so much. It's why I love you so much. I want to enter into this with you as one body, with Christ as the head, offering up worship, praise, thanksgiving, honor, glory unto the Lord because he is fitting to receive it. That's why we're here. That's why we do. Yes, it's, we have one another elements. That's important and I never ever want to separate that from what we do. We do this as a body, meaning we're all of one body, different parts. We all need one another. We all rely and depend on one another. We ought to enter into fellowship and communion and sharing life with one another. And we can do all of that because of the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross. But don't forget, when we come to this place and we gather like this, like we are right now, that God is the one to be at center stage. Not me, not JT, not the worship team, not you. It's all about the Lord and the work that he has done and his desire to come and dwell amongst us. So we ought to keep the Sabbath So now, as quickly as I can in closing, I want to give you what I think is really the application, what is just the, the kind of the, the, the meat and potatoes of all of this. Um, the tabernacle teaches us some things that I think we ought not miss. And the first thing that it teaches about 
is Christ. Because it is a picture and a type of the person of Jesus. Right? Because he is, he is the true fulfillment of all that it represents. In all of the instructions that God gives, in all of the functions of the tabernacle, of the altars, of the ark, of all of it, God is the true, or Christ rather, is the true fulfillment of every bit of that. John chapter 1, 14 says that the word, which is, we know is Christ, right? Word is capitalized. It's a title. It's Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt. Remember, tabernacle. Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. Can we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth? So Jesus is the fulfillment, he is a, a picture, the, the tabernacle was a picture of the, the Savior that was to come. The second thing that I think that, that we can see that the tab- tabernacle teaches us is about the presence and holiness of the Lord. That one seems pretty clear. God said that it was to be constructed so that he might dwell among his people and that he would be in the midst of his people. But his people were sinful. So how could he dwell with them? The tabernacle taught the Israelites lessons about God's holiness, that, that it, it was no small thing to just enter into the presence of the Lord because of our sinful estate. But thankfully, he also showed them as well as us the way into his presence, the way to be cleansed, to be purified, to be able to... to rightfully enter into his presence without being struck dead. I think the tabernacle also teaches us about salvation. Church, understand, Jesus is our high priest today. Right? He's the great high priest. Right? I would have liked to have gone into more detail about the high priest and the history of all of that. But just know that it was a very important and necessary role that God instructed and the God the Father instructed and Christ, he's, he's, he's the great high priest. He's the final high priest that God's people have needed. Hebrews chapter nine tells us that when Christ appeared as the, a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So the functions of the priest, the burnt, uh, the the altar of, of burnt offering, the altar of incense, all of it, all of it's a picture of what Christ is going to come and do. In the text that I just read you in Hebrews chapter 9, Christ fulfilled all of that. He did that. The, the tabernacle and, and, and the temples, both temples that, that existed in, in Jerusalem, that's the purpose that they served. I mean, yes, it was for God to dwell amongst his people, but they pointed to a greater reality that was to come. It was the coming of Christ, coming of the Messiah that we read all throughout Scripture, that even people in the Old Testament, they looked forward to, they longed for the Messiah. They didn't know who it would be, when he would come. But even in the Old Testament, that's where their salvation resided, the coming of the Christ, that God had come and dwelt amongst us in human flesh, that Jesus' own body would be symbolic of the temple. And that temple would be destroyed and then raised again anew. And because Jesus is the resurrected temple, understand as he says, or as as Paul says in Ephesians, that he is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation of the temple that exists today, church. And do you know who that, I just gave you the answer. Do you know what that temple is today? us the, the, the people of God that are under the new covenant that, that Christ ushered in 
We serve as the dwelling place for God by his spirit. So I think that really the greatest spiritual meaning and, and, and symbolism of the, the tabernacle in the book of Exodus is that God would give us, is, is giving Israel, he's giving us a glimpse of what it would be like for his presence to, to dwell within us. And church, what, what an unspeakable honor that we have today. The, the people of Israel, they, they had a literal physical structure that they had to enter into, that that's where the presence of God dwelt. But we today, we have God's spirit that resides within us. We are the temple of God today. Church, don't take that lightly. Understand that, that we are cleansed by the sacrificial work of Jesus, which gives us access into the most holy place. We can enter into the, the very presence of God because of the act of Christ upon the cross. I hope you realize the, 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 just the immensity of that and, and that it leads you to offer up just deep, heartfelt praise and thanksgiving unto God. Because this God who needs nothing from us and we can offer nothing unto him who is holy and set apart and different. Yes, we are made in his image but we are not the same. Desires to come and dwell amongst us and in us and that Christ tore the veil that separated us from the very presence of God. I hope you realize and feel that and it leads you to praise. John Owen, who, who was uh, one of the, the, the great Puritans, put it this way. He said, uh, in regards to, to Christ coming and doing that work, he said, by the coming of Christ in the flesh and the discharge of his mediatory office, serving as mediator between us and God in this world, the substance of what did prefigure, which is all that we've covered this morning, is accomplished. And in the revelations of the gospel, the nature and end of them is declared. When Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished, the work was done. We no longer have to offer up sacrifices. We, we no longer need to seek out the work of, of, a, of a priest to perform certain functions on our behalf because Christ has done it. He is the fulfillment. And so that means that Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle of God. He is the sacred place where heaven comes down to earth so that we can dwell with God. And understand, church, he isn't made of wood or gold or silver or or bright colored fabrics he came in the flesh flesh and blood skin and bone he was God incarnate and he also came with the divine nature of God he is the God man whose body was pierced and torn on the cross to pay for the price of our sin to pay a penalty that we could never afford. We could never afford to appease the wrath of God by our own works of righteousness. Christ did. He came as the God-man. He lived perfectly, never sinned, fulfilled all of the requirements of the law of God against sin, which required payment in the form of blood. And as I already said, the, the, the veil, the curtain that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place, I don't have the time to tell you how significant of a thing that was, that this thing was just ripped in half. When he said, he cried out in a, in a loud voice and gave up his spirit, he said, it's, it's finished, the, the, the veil, the curtain that separated, if you remember in the picture, the holy place from the most holy place, it was ripped in two. Symbolizing that we now have, through Christ, access to God. That we don't have to rely on another. We rely on Christ. And so church, listen, if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced the saving work of Christ in your life, 
if you haven't realized that you are a sinner and that sinner makes you an enemy of God. And I don't say that to upset you or to offend you. It's just the truth based on God's word. We are sinners. We are rebellion, rebellious people. We are enemies of God apart from Christ. And so the work that he does on the cross to offer you and I forgiveness and access into God, if you, aren't, if you haven't experienced that, then, then you don't have access to God. His spirit does not dwell inside of you. And so I can't stress enough the importance for you to, to, to see the reality of your sin and your need for a savior because you can never, I could have never before God redeemed me. I could have never done a single solitary work of righteousness that God would have seen and declared me as, as worthy of his salvation. Paul said our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. The very best that we have to offer up to God. And church, listen, that isn't for for. For me, like, I'm not trying to tell you that, that we're just utter garbage to the Lord. We are his children. He loves us, but we can't offer anything that's going to appease his wrath towards sin. Only Christ can. Do you believe that? So we are now granted access to the Father. If you, as I said, haven't experienced that redeeming work in your life, then today is the day. Hear me. Today's the day. Do it today. Surrender your life over to the Lord. I'm going to be over here with some others here in, in just a moment, and, and we're going to pray. Uh, we're going to sing, and we're going to pray. And if you need someone to talk to, someone to pray with, then I want you to come over, and I want you to, to do that. Before that, uh, I've, I forgot, we're, we're, we're going to be observing uh, the Lord's Supper communion, and we're going to, um, JT's going to come and share with you about that, but, but, but all of that in and of itself is symbolic of the work that I've just shared with you that Christ has done for us. So I want you to respond today. If, if you've already had the redeeming work of Christ take place in your life, but your life hasn't reflected that, then... But I want you to respond in that way today. Understand, church, that, that Christ is the vine and we are the branches and the branches are to bear fruit. And if we aren't bearing fruit, then why? Right? Maybe you're in a place where you just haven't taken your faith all that seriously. And listen, I'm not judging. I've been there. Right? Most of you in this room, you know my story I've tried to walk away from the Lord. Praise God, in his sovereign grace, he didn't allow it. But if you feel like you're in that place today, then listen, it's not okay, but, but it's okay. Like, like, let's do that work. Let's talk through that. Let's pray with that. Go to God with that. Let me pray, church. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you so much for this day for the opportunity to be able to enter into this place with the intent of offering up praises to you, to thank you for the work that you've done in and through us. And Lord, I just simply want to ask that if there's one here who doesn't know you through your Son and our Savior Christ, you would do that redeeming work in their life. You would draw them unto yourself, Lord. Father, help us to see how serious we are to take the ways you desire to be worshiped. And Lord, that we will offer up to you just a, a sweet and, and fragrant aroma of, of praise in the ways that you require of us, Lord. We, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Help us to walk in it daily, Lord. I thank you so much for this church and every person that, that represents this church, this body that I am so thankful to be a part of. Lord, help us to walk in this together, to, to push one another, to spur one another on to good works, to correct one another when we need to. So Father, now as, as we enter into this time of, of observing um, communion and singing, worship, singing praises of, of worship unto you, Lord, help us to do that as one body underneath the headship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his, his name I ask this. Amen.